This is Secular Medical Missions, a different motivation. If you're in the wrong room, feel free to leave. That's what I, happened to me yesterday. Um, I totally walked into the wrong room. So I won't be offended if you stand up. Um, how many guys are planning to claim CME or continuing ed credit for this class? Any guys? Okay, so some of you. Uh, here we go. Uh, I tried to make this as boring as possible so you'd be feel right at home claiming your CME. <laughs> I think all CME and all lectures start off with learning objectives, so we'll go over some of the learning objective, objectives for this. Uh, we'll discuss volunteerism in general, uh, just as the state in the United States. And then we'll talk about medical volunteerism specifically. Um, I have different terms that I'll sort of use interchangeably through this lecture, medical volunteerism, uh, secular medical missions, secular uh, humanitarianism, medical aid, that sort of thing. Uh, specifically, we'll talk about some of the position statements and publications from the medical societies. Uh, and then uh, the real boring part, we'll review the literature, go over a bunch of journal articles to understand some of the trends in medical volunteerism, and even more specifically within medical education, so in medical school and residency training. And finally, a brief note at the end, we'll talk about the motivations uh, for secular medical missions or humanitarianism and how we as Christians uh, can dialogue with our colleagues who are interested in that or who see us participating in that, and then they come to us um, asking about that. So, I submit to you that the reason I'm standing here has nothing to do with my personal or academic achievements, and that there are probably other people in this room and definitely this conference who are much more well-qualified to talk about this subject. Uh, my name is Drew Huang. I'm a resident uh, in surgery, specifically in plastic and reconstructive surgery, at the University of California Medical Center in Sacramento, California. Uh, plastic surgery is one of those really interesting topics. The minute I say that, everybody in their mind has a very visceral response to it and thinks of something in their mind, uh, whether or not it's actually related to my specialty. Fortunately, I don't have to discuss that today. Um, why am I, in particular, standing up here in front of you talking about this? Well, it interests me, one, just because I've done a fair amount of, of short-term medical missions, and I have a lot of people in the academic world, in my residency, and, and medical school friends who uh, come up to me and ask me questions about that. So that sort of got me thought, uh, thinking about it. Uh, but then there might be other motivations as well. Uh, however, in good CME form, I have no financial or corporate disclosures <laughs> to account for this lecture. Quick survey of you guys. Uh, how many of you guys are like my heads of state and stuff, attendings, uh, physicians in the room? All right, so several. Uh, residents or fellows, medical students? Wow, all right, excellent. Uh, nursing, nursing students? All right. Allied Health, pharmacy, anything like that, or PTOT, that sort of thing? Great. All right. So we have a good representation from all the groups, I think. Uh, so let's head into it. We'll talk about volunteerism in general. Uh, 2010, the Corporation for National Community Service released the 2009 data stating that um, about 20% of Americans volunteered in 2009 alone. Uh, they volunteered 8.1 billion hours of service, uh, $169 billion worth of services that were offered by volunteers. Uh, President Obama in 2009 signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. This gave $200 million to that corporation for national community service. Most of this was actually dedicated to expanding AmeriCorps, uh, which as many of you know is, is uh, kind of like Peace Corps in America uh, for volunteers within America. Anybody have any ideas what the top five states for volunteers are? This is volunteers, all comers, not just medical. California. Interesting. No, actually, I'd, I'd like to say it is because I'm from there, but no. Wyoming. No. That's actually correct. Utah. 
And then you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Uh, the next states, any ideas? Iowa? Minnesota? And Nebraska. They all have something in common. They're really cold. <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with volunteerism, right? Fifth state, any idea? I'll give you a clue. It's cold. No, it's really cold. It's Alaska. Uh, I thought that was just kind of interesting, some tidbits. Um, perhaps the prototypical idea when we think of volunteerism in general, and I kind of talked about it, is the Peace Corps. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary next year since uh, JFK proposed Peace Corps at the University of Michigan in a speech. In those 50 years, 200,000 Americans have served in 139 countries. Currently, the Peace Corps has uh, 7,500 workers uh, around the world in those countries. Um, I wrote, I don't know if you read that abstract, but I wrote in that that there seems to be an uptick in volunteerism. The data, at least in America, does show that, that uh, more people are volunteering um, in the country and internationally across all racial groups and across uh, age barriers. Uh, why is that? Why, why has volunteerism as a spirit um, of community and, and just this, this desire to help, why has that come up uh, seemingly more recently? There's some theories about this, but one of these theories has to do with a generational split. Uh, and when I talk about generations, I'm talking kind of, you know, the greatest generation, the, the World War II generation, then, then the baby boomer generation, and the subsequent generations after that. Um, and so we have this generational predisposition. This is one of the theories um, when it comes to volunteerism in America about why we've seen an uptick in volunteerism. Specifically, if we look at Generation X or the MTV generation, uh, this is a generation that's considered usually after the baby boomer generations. So we're talking about the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, people that came to age, came of age in the early 80s when MTV just came out, they've been sort of described as uh, nihilistic or cynical slackers. Um, the, the, these are the people for which um, uh, a lot of them are divorced and a lot of them come, come from or are creating broken homes. Um, and maybe for that reason, uh, they're just not into, into volunteerism, as, volunteerism as much. The following generation after that is uh, the millennial generation or Generation Y. There's a lot of different definitions for this generation. I'll say that I do fall into it based on the, on the uh, what I'll give right here, and this is one of the definitions. They were born between 1980 and 2000, so that dates me somewhat, um, maybe younger. But there was this book written by Neil Howe and William Strauss called Millennial Risings. Interesting book. They talk about how this generation, the generation that's coming to age right around the turn of the millennium, has the capacity to become the next greatest generation, that is, a generation that really can make an impact in the world. And here's a quotation. I'll, I'll display it on screen, and I'll just sort of read it. They are growing up in a world that feels post-truth, post-sacrifice, post-heroic, post-anything truly ennobling. Millennials often fault adults for being too self-centered, too smug, too wrapped up in grand causes that have strayed beyond their original purposes. And that's where they're finding a role. Already, millennial teens are hard at work on a grassroots, recon grassroots reconstruction of community, teamwork, and civic spirit. They're doing it in the realms of community service, race, gender relations, politics, and faith. Well, I think just anecdotally, and uh, maybe some of you guys can, can correlate to this, it's, it's, it's true, I think. Um, I think the young people, uh, these are the people that are currently uh, teenagers in college and med school. 
Um, that's the generation we're talking about. And I know personally, um, you know, when I'm interviewing medical students for residence, that sort, of, that sort of thing, or even some of the undergrads coming to medical school, I look at their resumes and I'm like, I'm glad I got in about 10 years ago because I don't think I could, you know, start three new NGOs and, and <laughs> spend every third day at the homeless shelter like they do nowadays. Um, just looking in the media, it's very easy to find information on humanitarianism and on volunteerism. CNN has an entire website or webpage just for humanitarian travel. They have lots of articles talking about things like volunteerism. Uh, that's, that's a new catchphrase about going on vacation and volunteering uh, at the same time. All right, so now we'll talk and go into the medical volunteerism aspect of things and uh, how that works out. Uh, I apologize to those of you guys who are of a more medical bent. Yeah. I don't know if you need that microphone. It's kind of going in and out. Yeah. There's a different mic for recording, actually, so I can turn this one off. No worries. Thank you. Um, okay, so for the guys with more medical bent, I apologize. Um, a lot of the data and stuff that I'm going to talk about is kind of a surgical bent. Um, I also talk like a resident because I am one. Um, so I apologize. Uh, definitely the stuff's coming from the other side of the blood-brain barrier. Um, there is a lot of data on medical volunteerism in medicine and family practice, that sort of thing. Uh, it's frankly more overwhelming than, than, than the data in surgery, so that's why more of my focus is on the surgical, just because I could get my mind around it. But we'll talk about some of the case studies uh, of medical volunteerism. Um, we'll talk about motivations. Uh, why do people who are not Christian, who have no desire really to spread the gospel of Christ, why do they want to sacrifice it themselves and go overseas to very primitive areas? Uh, and then for those of you who are going to claim some sort of education, we will talk about all these studies regarding medical volunteerism, and then specifically how international medical experiences uh, relate to training. And we'll look at some of the uh, studies and journal articles relating to that. So when somebody says medical missions, what's the first thing that pops into their mind? If you guys had this experience, you're talking about medical missions, you're talking about going on medical missions, and they say, oh, like that guy, Paul Farmer. Doctors without borders. I submit to you that there's basically only three things that come up in the layperson's mind, and they're one of these three people. Anybody know this guy? Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. He was the winner of the 1952 Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize. Uh, before he became a doctor, he was actually a very prominent theologian, um, and his dissertation on the historical Christ uh, essentially ended what is now called the uh, first historical quest for Jesus, or for the first quest for the historical Jesus. Uh, then he became a doctor, uh, and he spent uh, the latter half of his life uh, in French equatorial Africa, uh, now Gabon. The other guy is this guy. This is Paul Farmer. Uh, he is potentially the most famous uh, public health, global health uh, doctor in America. He's the chair of Harvard Medicine's Department of Social Medicine and Global Health, uh, one of the co-founders of Partners in Health, again, a very famous uh, public health organization. And then this... This is the uh, winner of the 1999 Nobel Peace Prize, which uh, threw them into the spotlight, Doctors Without Borders. Most of the time, you talk about medical missions just to the average person. They're like, oh, yeah, you went like Doctors Without Borders, or like Paul Farmer. Very, very common. More recently, um, the crisis in Haiti, both the cholera outbreak and, and the earthquake uh, earlier this year, or last year, uh, has really brought medical volunteerism into the spotlight. And... My guess is the majority of you know of people who have gone to Haiti or have gone or you guys are planning to go yourselves. Uh, but having a natural disaster this close to home um, has really upped the ante and brought it into the public spotlight. A quick 
brief note, uh, just so we're on the same terms here, relief versus development. Let me, let me talk about those definitions really quick. Uh, relief relating to humanitarian crisis or a local or, or natural disaster. Um, the synonyms are up there. Uh, that's sort of what relief work is. That's in contrast to development work. Um, that's where we're talking about working on, on long-term economic, political, social factors uh, and development, also known as developmental cooperation. Um, these are somewhat distinct. For instance, Doctors Without Borders does bill itself as a relief organization. Uh, they don't have a desire to be a developmental organization, and they're, they're billed, and they want to be a good relief organization. Talking about Haiti, I don't know if any of you guys saw this in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this was an op-ed piece published in January, um, Haiti, Obama's Katrina. This is published by uh, a couple orthopedic surgeons and a trauma surgeon from Cornell University in New York. They were one of the first surgical teams from America to get down into Haiti on the ground after the uh, earthquake. And then they came back and published this piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal. I wanted to read several paragraphs from this uh, because when I read this, um, it struck me as funny. Frankly, it struck me as a little bit naive um, when I saw what they had to say. And I, I sort of thought to myself, really? Like... This is, this is what you're writing about? This is what you're thinking? So, But I, I want you guys to make your own judgments. This is what they said. Hindering the effort was an absence of ventilators, anesthetic machines, and oxygen tanks. There was no blood bank or laboratory and a dearth of surgical instruments. Due to the lack of resources, we know many patients may still succumb to infection and other post-operative complications. They went down for uh, several weeks and came back. This was written so a lot of their patients are still in that acute, acute situation at this point. As we ran out of various supplies, we had no means to acquire more. There was no way to transfer patients we were poorly equipped to manage to a facility where they could get better care. We were heartbroken, having to tell patients suffering incredible pain we could not perform their surgery for at least a day. So they identify some problems, granted, true problems, working in a disaster zone. Uh, and then part of their, their op-ed piece uh, discusses some solutions that are uh, some some solutions, some observations, some things that they think might have helped. After the disaster, certain roads should have been secured to allow the transfer of patients or supplies. A base hospital could have been established for patients requiring specialized services, such as a NICU or neurosurgery. A specialized post-operative care center should have been established. In our case, however, we lacked the resources to ensure that patients were receiving basic wound care, antibiotics, nutrition, or hydration. No duh. <laughs> Uh, you're in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after a major disaster in which 100,000 know, people died. I kind of wanted to say to them, what did you expect? Did you expect a cell saver down there and a huge bunch of autoclavable supplies that would be waiting for you? Um, their recommendations, although they are, is true. It would be nice to have a specialized you know, neurosurgery intensive care unit and a post-op care unit. I have a hard time getting that at my institution here in America. Um, it's... It's not, it's naive to me, uh, frankly, when, when I read this. Um, what, what they're describing is frankly what the, not the majority, but what maybe one-third of the world lives under. They're not, they're, they can't get basic wound care. They have a very hard time getting antibiotics, nutrition, hydration. That's, that's two billion people in the world that have that. It surprises me that uh, they didn't really think about that before going down. But they went down, and, and you know, to their credit, they went down and helped out the people that they could. So when we're talking about relief versus development, uh, essentially what we're talking about is short-term versus long-term, uh, and that's what kind of what it boils down to. 
So then I'll ask this question. Which is the more popular secular option? Yeah, short-term relief work for the most part. Uh, going, going down to disaster areas like Haiti and doing that sort of thing. Um, and maybe for that reason, when you have people who, who have little experience in developmental work or long-term work, um, and they go down for these short-term efforts like in Haiti, you come back with these sorts of opinions and suggestions like you saw in the Wall Street Journal, to which you're kind of like, uh, okay, how many secular long-term medical missionaries out there? That is, how many people are serving long-term in an underserved area of the world who have no desire to further the kingdom of God, who do not want to spread the gospel, but are there purely just for, you know, I want to help people motivations. They exist. I mean, I've met a few of them. They do exist. I hypothesize, and I don't have any data, but I hypothesize that they are in the vast majority, minority, that there are very few of them out there that the vast majority, maybe 90% of long-term medical missionaries out in the world have some connection uh, to the kingdom, to a church, that their motivations um, are not purely secular or humanitarian. That's a theory, though. Let's talk about some of the medical societies. Uh, Various medical organizations have come up uh, with statements and with guidelines and committees. Uh, so I'll just highlight a few of those. Uh, the AAP has their section on international child health. They have meetings uh, every year, every other year. The American Association for Hand Surgery. Any of you guys who are not orthopedists or plastic surgeons are kind of like, wow, there's such a thing. And interestingly, it's actually the smaller organization. There's a larger organization of hand surgery. Uh, but they, had, in their uh, winter quarterly newspaper uh, in 2009, had an entire section on hand surgery in the third world where they interviewed uh, three hand surgeons and a hand therapist, and they had like three pages on this. They were just talking about what it's like to, in the world, in the, in the third world, to uh, to do hand surgery. Like I said, uh, there's kind of more of a surgical bent, so I apologize for those of you guys who uh, could care less. But the American College of Surgeons has something called Operation Giving Back. This is like an entire section of the college, uh, and they have a website, and it's sort of like a website. Um, it's like a clearinghouse for data on opportunities for surgeons to volunteer. Uh, all over the world. They have links to different organizations, websites, that sort of thing. Um, And in 2002, they uh, surveyed all the ACS fellows, asking them about uh, volunteering. So here's where we kind of get into some of the data. Um, In that survey, they had 695 respondents, um, of which, uh, there we go, 60% were general surgeons, the remaining were specialty surgeons, such as myself and plastics or ENT, neurosurgery, that sort of thing. 40% 40% of them were retired. This was disproportionate to uh, the fellows that are in the college. Only about, in the college, I think about 15% are retired. Um, 87.5% volunteered at some point, so a fairly high number of them have. Uh, 70% of them domestically and just over half of them internationally. When you ask them what, how, many, how much have they volunteered on average, typically uh, about three weeks. The survey also asked, what are your top two reasons, what was your top reason for volunteering? And here are the top two answers. First one, number one reason that ACS fellows want to volunteer. Non-Christians. No, not necessarily Christian. It's the right thing to do. Very simple. It's the right thing to do. Second reason, it's part of what it means to be a physician. These were the top two reasons uh, that these surgeons surveyed. Uh, In my own society, we have the American Society of Plastic Surgery. There's a section on that called Volunteers in Plastic Surgery. Uh, They have a very cute little motto. I think it kind of works. Go where there is a need. Go where you're wanted. 
Okay. Um, the VIPS has the guidelines for care of children in the less developed world. And, and again, we're talking about plastic surgery, so a lot of this is like cleft lip, cleft palate operations, uh, going out on short-term trips. Uh, and that's, that's very popular in my specialty. So this document was presented to create a guideline for both the sending teams and for the hosts when taking care of these children. And these were some of the things that they outlined should be available if you're going to go out and do surgery on children in the less developed world, uh, as they called it. Continuous electrical supply that is dependable, working modern anesthesia machines, recently calibrated, a dependable oxygen supply with a backup supply, EKG, BP, O2 saturations, end tidal CO2 monitoring, and continuous temperature monitoring, and blood banking at all hours. Again, um, kind of goes back to, yeah, that's actually great. Uh, and the guideline makes sense. I would love that. Um, I think anybody who goes into the developing world would love to have that doing surgery, especially on children. As if any of you guys have done surgery in the developing world, you know that a lot of this doesn't exist. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been to a place that has NCO2 monitoring, actually, outside of the Western world. All right. Uh, so here we go. Now we're going to turn to the literature, and I'm just going to go off on a bunch of journal articles. Uh, I like these journal articles because uh, most of them are pretty crappy, and it gives some hope to me as a resident that I can publish something crappy and get my name in these journal articles as well. <laughs> For instance, and these are fairly recent. This is in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery this year, 2010. Uh, a search of the Internet was performed to determine whether a pediatric surgery volunteer network exists. Conclusions. This study demonstrated no pediatric surgery volunteer network exists. Okay. I like the study. They searched through Operation Giving Back, which again is that website on the ACS, uh, and they only found four organizations that supports pediatric surgery international volunteerism. Interestingly, one of them uh, is well represented here at the conference. It's PACS. This is uh, an article, the BMC Medical Education uh, article uh, in 2007. And what they did here was basically listed what they saw as the perceived benefits of international medical experiences, is, is what they called it. Uh, these are sort of the reasons why, specifically, people in medical education, trainees, should do medical experiences. And I think this list here of motivations is actually very enlightening. And it's a little bit kind of like a no-duh, but it's also kind of enlightening to see, so this is why our colleagues who are not Christians still want to do a lot of this work. Introduction to rare clinical diseases, seeing things that you wouldn't otherwise see in the Western world. An improvement in your clinical skills, uh, not having all those lab tests and radiology to help back you up. Exposure to other healthcare delivery systems, seeing what it's like in other parts of the world that may have something like socialized medicine or um, you know, some attempt at government, uh, government medicine and just seeing how they can deliver that in very impoverished circumstances. It can affect students to go into primary care as a career choice or, and or public health, health policy for their career choices. Uh, it can provide them with an opportunity to, to feel committed to serving underserved areas or rural areas. And then, especially with cross-cultural experiences and increased cultural competence. This is kind of a busy slide coming up here. Uh, this is uh, done in Academic Medicine 2009. This was a survey, sort of a... a a list of a bunch of different surveys sent out to residents who 
have had or institutions that have global health experience. I'll just point out some things. There's a lot of people doing this. Uh, Yale, Duke, UCSF, Cincinnati, and they're going to all over the world. Haiti, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Taiwan, Brazil, South Africa. Uh, most of these surveys are, are done actually uh, on the family practice medical side. There were a few surgery studies that we'll talk about later. Um, but again, it, it goes on. Hopkins, Colorado, NYU, Guatemala, Peru, Uganda. So they're going to all over the world, and they're going to, to some very poor places, uh, and presumably they're doing some good work. Mayo, uh, and this came out just this year after the, that last uh, article came out, surveyed eight years' worth of residents that went on their international health program. They said they had 162 residents, 20 specialties, 43 countries. I don't know how they calculated this, but they said 40,000 patients were served. And again, they talked about sort of the benefits, uh, the things that the residents listed as, as why they went there um, and the things that they got out of it. Um, and it's very similar to what we saw before. There's varied pathology, uh, working, learning how to work with limited resources, improving clinical and surgical skills, um, educating residents, that, that is, educating the national residents and medical students to the countries that they were going to, uh, and then just experiencing new cultures, going to somewhere different and getting out of their comfort zone. All the general surgery program directors in the country were surveyed, 253 general surgery program directors. They got 73 responses, so a 29% response rate. Okay. Um, out of which um, 23 programs said that they had some sort of global health opportunities for the residents. They didn't specify what sort of opportunities. And frankly, it, it made me a little bit suspect, but that's what they said. The barriers that they saw, especially uh, from an education standpoint, resident education standpoint, um, one of its time constraint, learning, how, figuring out how to get rotations into the schedule, how to deal with call schedules when you have residents who are gone. Certification, ACGME and RRC restrictions. Uh, currently, if you're in a surgery program in the United States and you go abroad and do cases, those cases do not count towards your case log, and, and all procedural-oriented specialties have to obtain a certain number of cases before they graduate. Uh, and then lack of funding. Who, who pays for residents to take really expensive trips? Uh, the, on the residents' side, the residents were surveyed, and this was the first study that came out. They surveyed all the NYU residents, uh, and they got a fairly good response right there. And they said uh, the majority of them were interested in an international elective. They, they wanted to do it. At the time when they surveyed them, they didn't have that option, actually. But they were interested. And most of them would prioritize it over other electives. So obviously the interest is huge. People want to do this. Uh, people in medical specialties, secular people, they want to be involved with this sort of thing. The barriers that, um, I'm sorry, the expectations, like we've seen, technical and clinical skills improvement, uh, and then this cultural experience that they wanted to obtain. And the barriers that the residents perceived, uh, the highest one they saw was a financial barrier. Uh, again, who's going to pay for me to go? How do I support myself? Salary, all that sort of thing. Uh, and then half of them were concerned about scheduling conflicts. This survey uh, that was sent out to the NYU uh, surgery residents actually got generalized to all the U.S. surgery residents and got sent out to all the ACS resident members, so almost 7,000 re residents. And they had an 11% response rate, which frankly is crappy. Um, but again, kind of makes me hopeful that maybe some of my less well-received surveys can get published at some point. 90% of them were interested in international elective 82% of them would prioritize it over other electives. Interestingly, uh, nearly three-quarters of them would use their vacation time uh, to go on these things, which is what I did, actually, when I was in surgery residency. I used my vacation. Only 27% of them would finance it themselves. 
So how badly do they really want to do it? Well, put your money where the mouth is. Maybe not as many of them, really. The barriers that I identified in this one, 66% scheduling conflicts and 61% financial conflicts. So again, very similar. Something interesting, one-fifth of them were, in, were concerned about contracting HIV in the developing world. Um, just thoughts about not having immediate access to blood testing and to antiretrovirals, getting needle sticked. So a, a good proportion of them were concerned about that. Uh, Canada had a similar survey for their surgery residents. I'll skip over it, most of it because it was essentially the same data. It said the same thing. They're interested in it. They want to do it. They don't want to pay for it. Uh, the difference is that the Royal College in Canada allows up to three months within their programs uh, to do overseas training. Uh, that's not just for surgery. That's just uh, around the board as I understand it. So that's, that's a different policy than it is here in America. In my own specialty for residents, in plastic surgery, uh, this is very controversial, um, whether or not to allow residents to go on international trips, especially when you're talking about cleft lip and cleft palate trips. You're operating on babies. Do you really want residents to be operating on babies? You know, would you let them do that in the United States? So it's, it's very controversial within my field in particular. Um, many of you guys have heard of or know of Operation Smile. They're one of these organizations that goes out and does these trips for a couple weeks at a time all over the world. Um, Operation Smile, uh, a few years ago, set it up in such a way that they had residents go out specifically uh, with pre-trip planning, preparation, um, going out mentored with other surgeons. So they tried to make it very, very structured and very formal for the residents that went out. A year after that, they sent out a survey to these residents um, and asked them, well, what did you think of your Operation Smile experience? And I love their responses. 100% of them said they had positive impact on their lives. Almost all of them achieved marked personal growth. They all thought it was a quality educational experience, and most of them deemed it a valuable part of their residency training. Again, this got published in the most prestigious plastic surgery journal. Oh, wait. That's at the end. Okay. All right. Uh, here we go. An experience of one. This was a general surgery resident. Uh, 2009 published his experience, PGY3, so he was just below me. Went for two weeks to the Dominican Republic with a, uh, quote, surgeon who leads several missionary experiences a year. He just got to publish what he did. The team in those two weeks uh, did 235 operations. And the resident did 63 of those operations in nine days. That's volume. Anytime you're doing 63 operations in that short amount of time, no matter what you're doing, that, that's just a lot of stuff. Uh, I looked over his case log. It was, it was interesting. It was good. It ranged from hysterectomies and hernias to taking lumps and bumps off skin. But uh, he, he got volume out of that. All the residents have described their experience. Uh, two surgery residents, they published two different articles, uh, both in the journal Surgical Education. Um, one of them went to Malawi for six weeks. One of them went to Tenwick. Tenwick we know well here. Uh, for a year. The things that they noted that they really enjoyed about their programs um, was working in a limited resource setting, learning how to deal with those challenges, uh, learning how to come up with creative medical solution, medical solutions to, to the environment that they were in. They both emphasized in their articles the importance of having a mentor that was familiar with Western training standards, where they were in residency, um, and, and having that, that supervision over them and somebody to help guide them through that process. They both uh, talked a lot about the volume of experience that they got, which, which is true. They got incredible volume of experience. I touched on this briefly. Um, I'll talk a little, little bit more about it. This was in the World Journal of Surgery in 2007. Professionalism is one of those six core competencies, competencies for the ACGME. So when you're in residency, you have these six core competencies, and professionalism is one of them. We have to be taught that. Do 
international medical experiences, and specifically in surgery, do they foster professionalism? And this was kind of like, uh, the article's kind of like a debate, yes, no. On the yes side, what they said was it puts a face to the inequity, um, the global health inequity. Uh, you go out and you realize how blessed we are here in America or in Canada, uh, all the resources we have, and you see all the people don't have that. As a result, those trainees, those residents that go out, become better advocates for the poor, and they're more likely, I think this is very true, they're more likely to volunteer in the future, having that experience at a very impressionable young stage of their career. On the other side, uh, you can argue no, that essentially you're using poor people um, to practice on, right? And I think a lot of us have heard that argument before, um, that you're using people from other cultures for training purposes. Thereby, actually, in doing that, you're increasing the global health inequity because more poor people are getting higher risk surgery by less trained people. So by going, you're actually contributing to the inequity to which uh, you suddenly now are awoken to and, and realize. Okay, so, yeah, plus minus. Uh, there's, you can definitely argue it both ways. Interestingly, there's a follow-up discussion to this article uh, in the World Journal of Surgery, um, where an ophthalmologist wrote sort of an, an op-ed piece. And this is what she said. I thought this was also interesting. If a seasoned surgeon is allowed to climb the learning curve associated with a new laparoscopic procedure after having attended a two-day training course, why shouldn't a third-year resident be allowed to fix a few hernias in Africa? This is very true, especially for if you guys are general surgeons, you know, uh, like lap colons. This is the way a lot of general surgeons learn how to do laparoscopic colectomies. They literally go to a two-day course, and then they teach residents like me. Um, they're learning. And this is how this had concluded. Relatively, green surgeons are being allowed to train, experiment, and gain confidence treating, treating living patients. And this does not only happen in the developing world. I think that's very true. This article was published in JAMA, actually, uh, in 2008. And this was this is the ethical considerations for short-term experiences. And they looked at it sort of from three different perspectives. Uh, from the trainees' perspective, the people that are going, from the host institutions, that is the people that are welcoming those tra trainees to come, uh, and then from the sending institutions, that is where the where these trainees are coming from. From the trainees' perspective, it can be very exciting to go out there. You're suddenly seeing all this new pathology. You're learning how to deal with limited resource settings. Uh, you're gaining clinical and surgical skills. At the same time, your supervision may not be as great. You may be overwhelmed with the number of patients that you're suddenly responsible for. You'll see a lot more death. Um, all these things can be can create stress and guilt uh, for these trainees that go out there. This is one of the things that uh, this GEM article brought up. They also brought up the risks of the trainees' health, not only HIV, but just going to a developing world where people drive crazy and the roads are poor, you could get into a car accident. So there's some safety risk associated with that. From the perspective of the host institutions, that is the institutions that are accepting these trainees from America and Canada to come out and from Europe, um, it takes them time and money uh, to provide transportation, to provide housing for these people, even to take a person away from what they'd normally be doing and, and, and uh, act as a translator for this trainee. That's taking away resources from that host institution. These are oftentimes uncalculated and not really you know, compensated. There can be a tension between the people who are going out there wanting to serve but also wanting to do some sightseeing or some tourism to go on the to go in the jungle or to go on a safari, that sort of thing. And then if the host institution starts really developing a partnership and, and getting these trainees coming on a regular basis, what if there's a gap? What if suddenly there's like you know two months where we're supposed to have a resident they they couldn't come, and now the host institution's kind of left 
uh, up for grabs. They, what the, the resources that they were expecting coming from the developed world, suddenly there's a gap in that. From the sending institutions, from our you know, overarching institutions, there is, I think we all agree, an ethical obligation to improve care. That is, we want to be ultimately helping the people that we're going out. And so our sending institutions sort of have this obligation to try to make sure you know, we're sending people out. Hopefully they're actually doing some good. Not only that, they can use that program as a way to attract philanthropy back here in America. Um, you know, saying, hey, we have this program. We're active in social medicine and in global health. Um, donate to our cause. Give us money. Yeah, that's true. One of the things that I think the article made an interesting point was being aware of how the resources are allocated and really for the, for the sending institutions taking uh, a step back and evaluating these programs that they've set up, would the money that they're spending helping these residents, these medical students, go out, is that better or worse than trying to create some long-term partnership than a bunch of short-term projects? Again, the article didn't define what they meant as long-term or short-term, and the definitions are very vague here. Uh, but that was something that the article bro- uh, brought up. All right. So this is sort of the last part of the talk, and this is, um, this is fairly short. But motivations, and I think uh, this is what it boils down to, um, are motivations. What is the motivation for doing medical missions uh, for the Christian and for the secular humanitarian? And, uh, I, I use that term. I know it's, it doesn't sound great, but I, I mean it's just basically a humanitarian, somebody who wants to do good uh, and has no desire to necessarily further the kingdom of, of Christ. For that secular humanitarian, uh, what we see in motivations, and that have been well documented in the literature, I think, um, are just improved clinical skills, the idea of experiencing new cultures and new peoples, uh, going to somewhere and being educated, as well as educating other residents, medical students that you meet there. And, and ultimately, what it boils down to is, is altruism, just the idea that you want to help, this very basic instinct that most of us went into the healthcare profession in the first place. I think those are all very good reasons. There are other reasons that may not be quite as uh, selfless. Uh, maybe just the idea of, of having an adventure, um, of going sightseeing, of, of combining that trip with with the safari or with the jungle trip or with whatever else. Um, maybe slightly more cynical. There's this idea of heroic sacrifice. You know, oh, I'm sacrificing. Oh, I'm giving up my time. Oh, look at me. I'm going here. And that's true. Uh, I don't discount that. There, there is a sacrifice associated with that, and especially um, in my specialty, I know lots of plastic surgeons who are in private practice who make very, very good money. Uh, and for them to leave their private practice for two to four weeks a year and go on these cleft trips, they're losing money. I mean, they are. They still have to pay their staff. Um, you know, they're not making money that they were at home. For them, they are losing money. Are they, are they sort of pointing that out? Yeah, maybe. And then there's always a safety net back home, right? Um, and that kind of goes back to not being many long-term secular medical missionaries. Um, they go out, but they always know we're coming back. It's not going to be too long. We're coming back. How about for the Christian missionary? Uh, this this is a quotation from uh, my utmost course highest, and it came from one that was literally called the missionary's goal. The aim of the missionary is to do God's will, not to be useful, not to win the heathen, He does win the heathen. He is useful, but that's not his aim. 
His aim is to to do the will of his Lord. Put another way, the Christian motivation, ultimately, is nothing more, nothing less than Christ himself. Christ is the reason, the means, the end, and the consummation of what we do uh, as Christian medical missionaries. Like I said, I don't want to say that the secular motivations are bad. They're not. There's nothing inherently sinful, I think, unethical, dangerous, uh, inappropriate about these motivations that uh, motivate many of our colleagues uh, in medicine and in nursing. And I think, and this is, a, this is a personal opinion, but I think in general, humanitarian work should not be discouraged among our secular colleagues. We should, in fact, actively encourage it. And when they come to us asking about it, I don't think we should be that wet blanket for them even though they may not be Christians. That being said, then, we have some issues to, to think about and to deal with. How do we as Christians uh, talk to those people who want to do this work, but they're not Christian? Or frankly, they may not even be religious. They may be anti-Christian, saying, I want to go out and do medical missions. I'm better than you because I don't have an ulterior motive of, of evangelism. They actually think of themselves that way. How do we, how do we address those people? What do we say when we come back from uh, a short-term trip or when long-termers, you guys come back and you talk to people who are not necessarily Christians and they say, oh, how do I, do, how do I get to where you're at? How do I do that? What, what do I need to do? Uh, I mean, do I tell them, yeah, I went with Samaritan's Purse, a Christian organization. Oh, I did it again. Do we, do we bring up those differences in motivation immediately? We've talked about the differences right now. Do we bring those up? Do I tell them, well... I go out because I want to further the kingdom of Christ and make Jesus' name known. Why do you want to go? (laughs) Uh, Do we bring up the idea of the Great Commission? I go out because in Matthew, God commanded me to go out. And so finally we get to George Bush. Okay, so these are answers to which I don't, uh, uh, these are questions to which I don't have answers. And uh, I'll open it up for discussion. Uh, Your your advice uh, is welcome because, like I said, I'm not particularly qualified to talk about this, but I've seen a lot of these questions raised, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say. Right, so, so the question has to do with, you know, being in an academic setting, people who, uh, you know, hear missions but then are kind of like anti-Christian in that sense, they have this bad idea of, of Christian missions and the, and the history of Christian missions maybe. Uh, again, like I said, I'm not qualified to talk about this really. Um, I have come up with that situation though plenty of times. Honestly, the way the conversation for me personally ends up is, and, and again, the reason I'm not qualified, I'm not a long-term missionary. Um, I'm a resident. But... I sort of do tell them, all right, you know, I understand where you're coming from. That makes sense to me. I understand why that sort of freak you out. Show me, you know, the sorts of people that are doing this work, though, and tell me if, if you can point out how many people you can point out that are, that are really doing this work long-term in the difficult settings. 
and what are their motivations. And typically, they point out, you know, Paul Farmer and Doctors Without Borders. Um, but it sort of just ends up being like, well, from an experiential standpoint, who's really doing this work? Who, who's who's in in the grind? And maybe maybe their motivations really can't be so bad if they're the ones sticking it out. Again, it, the conversation is kind of weird because I'm not in that position to say that from personal experience. I'm not that person out there. Frankly, neither are they usually. Um, so I have to refer them to other people. That's sort of the best I got. Yeah? Um, just to comment on that, I don't think that we can deny that there has been a lot of harm done. Mm-hmm. redirecting them to look at what has been done well and and also looking at all the non-Christian societies that have done things wrong because it goes both ways. And so you can't just ignore it, but to look at the opposite sides I think is a better way to approach it. That's true. Um, I volunteer at a free medical clinic in Columbus, Ohio, and we are sponsored by churches but we do have um, students from Ohio State that come as residents and nurses. And we, we say we're helping hands, but it is Jesus who heals the patients. So we always pray for our patients. They are included. And we have many of the students that are seeing the example of Christ in <coughs> the practice. So we look at it that it is a benefit for those to mm-hmm. see it in action. We've even had some of our patients that are volunteering because they see the love of Christ. Yeah. Uh, I found your point about the millennial culture uh, very interesting because I've been working a lot with youth, and in this new generation that's doing a lot of service projects, to them, the humanitarianism and humanism um, are equivalent. And so they don't really see a distinction in the terms of the quality and the product of the service that we provide and versus what the secular world provides. So in their mind, they're equivalent. They're the same. Um, but there's a very, very fundamental theological difference between the two. Um, to the secular world, right? They do it in, their altruism is to decrease the overall amount of suffering in the world, right? And that in itself is an ultimate good. Whereas for us, suffering itself is a good, in that it points us to the fact that um, we are broken in our relationship mm-hmm. with God. And so, you know, our two approaches are radically different. Um, so, I think you know we probably should do also a better job educating people within the church, right, who do go out on these trips and who serve in multiple secular organizations as well that, you know, about the sort of theological difference because, you know, I talked to a lot of these youth and they have no idea. And they mm-hmm. just, you know, fundamentally later on then they start to question the, the Christian motives and start to criticize the Christian culture about these things and then they start to lean more towards the secular options <coughs> they believe it's more quote unquote pure. Yeah. Um, but because they haven't addressed a fundamental philosophical theological issue. Yeah. Back here. Just a couple of things, you know, in terms of motivation, uh, if you look at Paul Farmer, his motivation was Matthew 25. Uh, read his, his writings. He has something called the hermeneutic of generosity, which he derives from Matthew 25. So your colleagues, can, you can say, well, you know, even Paul Farmer derives his motivation hmm. from the Bible, the New Testament, in particular, Jesus, especially. The other thing is that if you read the Junior American Medical Association, they put out uh, opportunities for... Uh, healthcare professionals to work overseas, and 90% of those are Christian organizations. And the other thing you can point out is, in sub-Saharan Africa, 
And I agree. I think in general, I understand that the, the history of Christian min, uh, missions as a whole uh, can become a kind of spectacle, but Christian medical missions as a whole is, I think, done overwhelming good for the world, both both Catholic and Protestant. Over here. Well, I just wanted to say something to what you had said. Um, I work for secular organizations and for Christian organizations, and I believe that Christians have gotten a bad rap overseas because people say, well, you just come to tell people about Jesus and to get converts, but you actually don't get, do good medical work. And I think it's really important as believers that we provide very good medical care. And so then they can't get us on that basis. you know. And I think I agree that um, we're there long-term sticking it out. And they see us suffer. They see us sick. Um, they see us in the hospitals with our patients. And I just think that um, that's my experience, is that many people have said to me, well, you know, you just put a band-aid on, and then you tell them about Jesus, and they, you know, have uh, cancer or whatever. And so I think it's really important that we just keep a very high standard of care. And they see that, and that speaks for itself. And then they see our love and compassion, and, um, and we stick it out. Dave Stevens makes that point multiple times in, in his writings as well, that having a high standard of medical care is, is paramount in medical missions because uh, you are, you know, witnessing Christ. Can we, should we, partner with secular groups to get a project done? Partner with them. If we think the work itself is important, then, then yes. And if we think that the work is meaningless unless we're spreading the gospel, then no. That's a, I mean, you obviously know that's a very controversial question, and different organizations and different, you know, mission boards have different philosophies uh, to answer that question. Mo- most of them that I've worked with or talked to generally say no. They don't. Uh, with At least with, you know, secular organizations from America, they may partner with, like, the government over in the country that they're serving. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the right or wrong answer. I, I honestly don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's that's the ultimate fear, is that the message, the gospel, gets watered down or neglected. Absolutely. That's sort of our time. Uh, you guys have 10 minutes to get to your next one, so thank you very much.